Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Larry Corey. Larry is one of the nation's best-known virologists and vaccine developers. Much of his research over the years has been on HIV, herpes simplex viruses, and viruses associated with cancer. He's the founding director and principal investigator of the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, a collaborative group to study vaccine candidates at 30 sites around the world. He's based in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He served as president and director of that institution in the early 2010s, but now is back to running his own virology lab. Larry has spent 50 years thinking hard about viruses and how to combat them, dating back to his stint at the CDC during the Vietnam War days. Early in his career at Burroughs Welcome, working with future Nobel laureate Dr. Gertrude Elion, he developed acyclovir as the first effective therapy for genital herpes. As director of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, he led the organization that proved combination antiretroviral treatments could control HIV. The team later demonstrated that these drugs could reduce transmission of HIV from mothers to their infants. This whole set of experiences has shown him what each major player in the scientific enterprise brings to the table, academia, government, and industry. All of this makes him a great person to talk to now about vaccine strategy for COVID-19. Just before we recorded this episode on May 12, he published a perspective piece in Science with Tony Fauci, John Mascola, and Francis Collins of the NIH as co-authors on how to think about strategizing around this unprecedented global vaccine effort. I'll provide a link to that article in the show notes on TimmermanReport.com. But this is a timely and frank conversation about one of the most important aspects of the pandemic response. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to tell you briefly about the sponsor of the long run, RareSight. RareSight delivers precision biology products and services for circulating tumor cell and multiplex tissue analysis designed to accelerate your cancer research. RareSight leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services, long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSight products for comprehensive CTC analysis include the AccuSight sample preparation system, RarePlex staining kits, and SightFinder instruments, all of which are easily deployed in research labs worldwide. RareSight currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging RareSight services team at info at rarsight.com or at rarsight.com slash RC. Now, please join me and Larry Corey on The Long Run. Larry Corey, welcome to The Long Run. Pleasure to be with you, Luke. So, Larry, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Um, it's uh, a very busy time. Uh, you've been a virologist, immunologist, vaccine developer for uh, 50 years. <laughs> this is your life's work. Uh, obviously, extremely well positioned now to be helpful uh, in this moment against SARS-CoV-2. So, um, thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. 
you know, it's an unprecedented time and um, there's both um, excitement and um, sort of dismay, you know, uh, I've seen other formidable pathogens in my life uh, and certainly HIV is a formidable pathogen, but, you know, we're dealing with a pathogen that has infected over 4 million people uh, in a five month period of time. And so that's an unprecedented number ever in the history of mankind. Um, yes, um, the Spanish flu um, maybe even had more deaths, but that was over a two year period of time. So, um, and we're still counting um, 1.4 million cases as of last night in our own country. And we know that's an undercount. So this is um, a very formidable pathogen um, and a very formidable time with respect to um, how to handle this. Um, and uh, how do we both develop treatments and how do we develop um, preventions? And uh, it sort of bespeaks a little bit about, you know, how we started with HIV. You first started with behavioral change and then you had an antiretrovirals and they helped um, with the disease. Um, and then they also helped decreasing transmission. And then we have sort of tried to develop both monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. And, and we've done a lot with the antivirals and behavioral change. Um, here, the COVID, the behavioral change has uh, is actually much harder um, than altering sexual behavior. Physical distancing is is harder as it relates to the economy uh, of the globe and travel of the globe. And we certainly need to have the biomedical establishment, um, our very powerful biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry, you know, create the next um, tools in the toolbox for physicians to be able to handle this infection, um, both from a treatment point of view and a prevention point of view. And that's where we are. We need to pull out all stops and we're starting to see uh, where both vaccines and monoclonal antibodies are moving forward. Um, and this technology, I think, will offer great optimism. And the issue is, is how do we test them, deploy them, implement them, the, and come up with a strategy that allows um, safety, speed, veracity, and good enough data so that we can take the data and translate that into public policy. Okay, Larry, you, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the historical parallels there to HIV and Spanish flu. I want to come back to that later. Uh, but you just came out with a, a pretty substantial piece in science with uh, well, you're the first author with uh, Francis Collins, Tony Fauci, and John Maskala at NIH as your co-authors. And you're really talking about a, a roadmap, a, a game plan, if you will, for vaccine development specifically. For those who haven't read it yet, uh, what were a few of the main points that you were trying to convey there? I think the first point is that um, we have the need uh, to vaccinate the entire globe and that there is not one technology that can accomplish that. So we have to come up with a parallel development of multiple vaccines, um, which we, it's not just to show that they're effective. It's actually to the time from when we test them to the time when they um, get put into people's arms is really what this is all about. Um, and therefore dealing with manufacturers and companies that can scale what we're trying to do is very important. 
we need hundreds of millions of doses out of each technology because there is not enough lipid molecules to actually make the, to encoat the RNA. Um, the, the, the manufacturing skills and, and requirements of a vector are different than a protein. Proteins and adjuvants have to be put together and there are shortages of adjuvants and, uh, and even the bacula virus or some other system that, that uh, makes a protein um, vaccine can maybe be scalable to 500 million. But we're really talking about 4.4 billion adults, and it looks more and more like we need to uh, involve the children in, in a vaccination scheme. So that's concept one. We need multiple winners. Um, sort of and, an all of the above approach. Right. We need to do all of the above. And so you have to step back and sort of say, well, what's what's a plan that allows us to um, allow that to for multiple scalable entities? Big Pharma uh, is definitely involved and we have to create public-private partnerships. We have to use all the best and brightest from academia, pharma, government to get us to our goal. And it's a common goal. We're global citizens and, and it hasn't been hard to get people to buy on to the public-private partnership. Um, and that's from a public funding point of view. Uh, on the back end, having multiple vaccines helps the diversity, um, uh, not, not just economically, but we need a diversity of, of vaccines. Not every vaccine is can you use in a pregnant woman. Every platform can you use in a pregnant woman. There are some vaccines that historically uh, have had um, done better in children and have less, you know, reactogenicity. Uh, and there's the, the whole issue of how do you handle the elderly? Um, and will, will vaccination work with, as well in the elderly? Uh, will monoclonal antibody need to augment that or be part of that um, are all there. So we do need diversity here. You didn't, I'm not sure you mentioned the old school, um, you know, whole killed or live attenuated vaccines. Are, are they part of that big strategy to get you all the way to 4.4 billion um, vaccinations? Well, we haven't favored old school because the coronaviruses um, do have this issue, at least in animals, of vaccine-enhanced um, uh, disease. Uh, and the inactivation process is more prone to that. And in animal models, those vaccines have been more prone to the development of those non-effective neutralizing antibodies or antibodies that um, essentially block but don't neutralize and lead to this enhanced disease process that has been seen with kids many years, 50 years ago in respiratory essential virus. So there's been a tendency to use modern technology rather than an inactivated vaccine. So that leads you to things like the mRNA or the viral vector and you know protein vaccines that you alluded right. to, but they each have their own um, drawbacks, as you mentioned, like manufacturing limitations being one yeah, and you could actually say the same thing with an activated vaccine. This is a virus that has to be grown up in BL3. And so to grow up a virus in BL3 and inactivate it, um, again, we're worried about um, the inactivation process um, disrupting what is called the prefusion state, uh, which is the attachment state of the virus. So um, it also has, the inactivated approach also has a very substantial um, difficulty in manufacturing to scale. Yeah, biosafety level three, there just aren't that many labs really set up for that. Uh, limits your capacity. Okay, okay. So just backing up just a little bit, as a virologist, Larry, when you started looking at the, the coronaviruses in general, or this one in particular, 
what stands out for you in terms of its its natural characteristics that that make you think about the the most likely vaccine strategies that would work? Well, historically, what you want to do is stop attachment of a virus. If it can't land, it can't get in a cell, and you can even say if it can't land, it's you know it's not alive. So most vaccines do in viral disease try and reduce attachment. Um, I think what's unique about the unique about the coronaviruses that are the SARS-like coronaviruses that the receptor, the ACE2 um, receptor, is is broadly distributed in the body, um, and it's not just the nose; it gets in the lungs, maybe primarily through aerosol. But the ACE2 receptor is in the heart. It's in the um, uh, it's in the colon, uh, and it's in the kidneys, and that relates to the unusual pathogenesis of the disease. But you are trying to block attachment in that essentially all the vaccines in the first group being evaluated have some uh, construct or some, you know, involve uh, using the spike protein or the landing protein uh, as the immunogen. Uh, Sometimes it's membrane bound and sometimes it's soluble. But whether it's an RNA vaccine or an AD26 vaccine or the chimp um, uh, adeno vaccine or the or the protein baculovirus vaccine, um, they're really all using some form of um, uh, inducing spike protein in a conformational state that will make neutralizing antibodies to prevent attachment. Now, we hear a lot in the news about the mutations that are occurring, the various strains that are out there and where they come from. But I think what has also been published is that the, uh, the mutations are not really occurring very much in the spike protein. So that seems to be a pretty largely conserved region, which I think is, is good news, that this is not a big moving target, like the thing that you need to um, educate the immune system to, to recognize um, is, is pretty consistent. Is that right? Correct. Uh, There have been some mutations in the spike protein area, but not in the receptor binding site area or the site that that is directed most towards um, what a vaccine would be. And so um, today we're still pretty optimistic that what is circulating today is similar enough uh, to the original circulation from which these these immunogens are derived. Okay. Um, But just... Coming back to that nature of the coronaviruses, they do mutate. They do come in different strains, uh, maybe not as at the same rate as influenza. Long term, do you think that this is something where we're going to have to come up with different kinds of vaccines depending on the season to, to kind of constantly keep up with it like flu? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And I'm just going to frankly say um, I don't know. Um, uh, we have an RNA virus that has the ability to mutate and what kind of selective pressure uh, we would have on it um, on a population basis or from mass vaccination, we'll need to see. I guess I'd like uh, to get to that point where we put enough immune pressure on a population basis, which means we've got a bunch of vaccines that are um, out there and distributed in a lot of people's arms. Well, and we're just beginning to see some of those trials get up and going. We have one here in Seattle with the Moderna vaccine in collaboration with NIH. Um, There's an Oxford group in the UK, and there's a China group um, that are probably the best known, I guess. Is the data from any of these, like, standing out for you as encouraging at at this point, or is it too early to tell? It's just too early to tell. There's there's, uh, very little data out there, and 
um, of any substance. And um, we're operating on on um, on hope, some good animal model, animal data, uh, and we'll wait and see what we see in humans. RareSight delivers precision biology products and services for circulating tumor cell and multiplex tissue analysis designed to accelerate your cancer research. RareSight leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services, long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSight products for comprehensive CTC analysis include the AccuSight sample preparation system, RarePlex staining kits, and SightFinder instruments, all of which are easily deployed in research labs worldwide. RareSight currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging the RareSight services team at info at raresight.com or at raresight.com rc. about these timelines? We've been hearing a lot about, you know, an 18-month development timeline, which is a whole lot faster than the world record, which I think is about four years. Um, do you think that's realistic? And if so, uh, why? First thing I say is we need to try and we need to do everything we can to um, develop veracity and yet um, achieve um uh, the timeline that as rapid a timeline as we can, uh, and I'm optimistic that um, we, it, with a little bit of luck, um, we can achieve some of those at timelines. Um, first is to have a large study. I think most of the trials that we're talking about are approximately thirty thousand people. The second is not just vaccinate anybody, but we have to go to um, we have to use modern technology that is tracking the virus that has AI that anticipates where micro outbreaks are. And we have to bring our sites to the virus and not just have a fixed army. Uh, And the logistics of this have to be worked out and we have to use technology to do that. Um, And we're fully prepared to do that and those discussions are underway. So the operational aspects have to be compressed in a way um, and a novelty uh, that allows it to happen. Uh, A, rapidly enroll people. and then um, use what is called an adaptive endpoint design. Um, so you know the number of endpoints that are needed to, let's say, show 60% effectiveness. And you have to have a, a really good data safety monitoring board, um, which we propose in the article should be the same data safety monitoring board for all the individual trials. So they have experience with this and they can evaluate things um, based on the experience and make the kind of knowledgeable um, kinds of decisions that guide that A, there's safety, and B, there's enough um, uh, uh, data to start the process of saying that there's effectiveness has been achieved. That doesn't mean you end the trial um, because you've already enrolled the people. You would actually continue the trial. You would continue to accrue data on 
what is the relative vaccine efficacy and what are the confidence limits around those that, that efficacy and what populations have you enrolled in which you can actually demonstrate efficacy. So if we do that and we do one of those um, trials, uh, one every two months, um, we will be able to have a very significant database so that maybe by the second or third trial, if there's uh, sort of effect in this, we will be able to um, use this independent board and these similar laboratories that are doing this, the laboratories between all the trials are the same. Um, uh, therefore, the assays can be compared between trials. We might be able to come up with a correlate of protection, um, maybe a level of neutralizing antibody that is 80% effective or 90% effective. Then we actually then can bridge to um, many other um, populations and even many other platforms um, that we could just need to show safety and immunogenicity. So that's the best case scenario um, in which you then have a multitude of vaccines. Um, but it's possible that maybe the first one could be out of the box in six or seven months after trying. Well, I want to um, come back to these uh, these immuno um, the organizational operational changes because these are pretty significant. But you you mentioned kind of protective rate of immunity sixty percent maybe eighty percent. How how good is good, or or where do you need to get this to? Well, really great is ninety percent. Um, uh, if you decreased uh, COVID disease uh, and um, by 60 or 70 percent, that would be terrific. 60 or 70 um, percent of the population, to be clear. Well, that'd be vaccine efficacy. Now, you know, you would like to see that um, in all populations. It'd be great if, if it was, uh, it would be higher, but um, the utility of a vaccine um, uh, needs to be balanced. And if you could actually markedly decrease the morbidity and mortality of COVID disease with a vaccine by 60%, that would um, really help things a lot. Um, yes, maybe we would um, need to have other tools and maybe going for 60% to 80% or 90% will take another year or two, but you'd still have, I think, um, enormous uh, vaccination campaigns with a partially effective vaccine. Let's hope it's higher. Do you think we could get in a situation where things get really gray? I mean, I know it's hard to speculate, but you know, the Moderna vaccine, for instance, has a low dose and a high dose in its phase two of, I think, 50 micrograms and 250. Now, if, um, say, the 50 microgram dose is effective uh, or gets you the protective immunity that everybody wants, well, fantastic. You can make a whole lot more. Uh, you can serve a lot more people with that really low dose. But if you have to go to all the way to 250, <laughs> well, that's going to be that's going to create some problems, I would imagine, with, you know, getting the thing distributed around the world as quickly as people want. You're exactly right. And that's why we need multiple platforms. Okay. Let's come back to this question of the things that need to happen all in parallel. Uh, you mentioned having a DSMB. I can imagine them almost like holed up in a hotel in Chicago. It's just like, here, look, look at this latest batch of data from trial one. And then, you know, next week, look at trial two. I mean, and, and keep them on that, you know, really uh, in that mode and not, you know, having to reinvent the wheel or get help everybody else, you know, somewhere else in the world, get up their learning curve. I mean, a whole lot of new efficiencies need to get brought to bear here. Right. I, I think that's true. And we've had discussions about all of these. Um, there's incredible scientists in the world who want to help and who would devote themselves 
um, to doing this. And I, I, I think there's unanimity that we need to have the collectivism um, of being a global citizen. And if you have the skill set to help um, in this field, um, you need to participate in it. And I, I, I think that's where I am. And um, I think that's certainly where Tony is and Francis Collins and certainly John Muscola. We're all, um, uh, but there are hundreds of, of scientists who are sitting on the active committee and, and the CSOs of uh, the biotech and, and um, uh, pharma committees um, have been really active participants. And um, we see cooperation, we see altruism um, among uh, industry. Um, and everybody sees how everybody is affected by this and it's affecting us all. So um, I think that's, you know, one of the gratifying things. That's one of the optimistic things that has come out of my work uh, in this arena. Now, here we are in May of 2020, and we're really thinking about a vaccine. Best case scenario comes out maybe May of early 2021, let's say. What are the kind of things that need to be happening now, the groundwork being laid now to make us ready to roll when that time comes where we've got, you know, hopefully a couple vaccines? I'm thinking specifically here about manufacturing, but you might have some other ideas. Um, well, I think um, both manufacturing and distribution needs to be planning for success. Um, manufacturing means um, manufacturing doses at risk. Um, many of the companies are, um, are doing that and, and, you know, and the U S government through BARDA, uh, is, is paying for some of that. Uh, I don't know how much, but that's certainly an, an important component is to, um, plan for success. Bill Gates has uh, said something about this to, too. Yeah. And we need to figure out how to finance it. Um, uh, while, the global networks that we're putting together are international networks, um, very strong in Africa and South, South America and some areas of Asia. And um, we're going to need the cooperation of, uh, of the entire citizenry, um, the WHO, um, the distribution systems, um, Gavi, that, that, uh, and financing mechanisms to uh, make it available to low and middle income countries. Um, and uh, links to Europe uh, also. So um, all of these are going to be necessary and uh, are under active discussion and, and, have, and are starting to move, um, I think, forward in unprecedented speed to anticipate um, your question. Now, you mentioned all this international cooperation. You've been a part of that with your HIV work over the years, but um, there's also been a real nationalistic tone um, from this country and some other countries too, uh, which, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what do you think when you hear that kind of talk? Here is where I feel the multinational companies are really helpful. Uh, the multinationals have relationships in every country. They distribute drugs. They have relationships with regulatory activities in every country. Um, and in the end, um, this is where one of their great strengths are. Um, so I, I understand the rhetoric on high. But in the end, um, I think everybody who's a physician, researcher, scientist, um, uh, knows that their job is to save as many lives as they possibly can in as short a period of time as you can save lives. So you um, think the companies can help broker <laughs> the governments? Maybe I, 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 I do think that. Um, and I think that's 
a conscious strategy on her part. Uh, not my part, but I think it's a conscious strategy of, of um, or it's a constant fallout. Maybe I'll let me redo the word. Um, um, it is a, um, uh, it is one of the consequences of being able to have this public-private partnership. Okay. Now, at least with the testing, you've, you and everybody else, we've seen these strange bottlenecks showing up in the global supply chain, things like shortages of swabs and reagents that are like these cheap commodities rather than, you know, the test itself. I mean, is there, is there some analogy here to vaccines that we can be thinking about now to make sure that we're not caught with some kind of weak link in the supply chain, like, you know, medical glass for fill and finish or something like that? Well, you actually hit on one that people have talked about. As usual, you're very perceptive. Um, and, um, you know, the, the glass for fill and finish is, uh, is an issue. And um, I, I think some of the philanthropic organizations, as well as the uh, pharmaceutical organizations, are starting to identify and work through what are the problems associated with getting this out? And I, I think Mr. Gates has been, you know, prescient in this area and uh, and his attention to detail and where he's taking the, uh, the foundation to point out these issues and to work on catalyzing their solution, I think has uh, been terrific. What are some other areas that um, might help us save a little time? Uh, as we try to do this, all of the above. I mean, people have talked about challenge studies, for instance. Uh, is that one of the potential advantages? I know there's risk in challenging people directly with this virus that we don't really know how to effectively treat yet. Um, but what, what? how do you think about the pros and cons of that? That's complicated. Um, uh, and my thoughts are the following, is that the human challenge model um, can teach us some things. Um, I, however, um, when I look at it hard, um, I'm not sure that it can, um, it provides the kind of data um, in enough time to, to essentially alter the strategy that we're outlining. That in the end, um, we need a vaccine efficacy trials. This virus is around um, and is affecting enough people that we should be able to do these large scale efficacy trials. And I have no doubt that they can be conducted and I think they will be conducted well and provide the definitive answer. Number two, do. the diversity. No, go ahead. The diversity of people we need to understand um, efficacy from. Um, all challenge models have some deficiency so far and they're generating healthy people with an attenuated strain. And you might be able to get some correlates that are useful uh, in that attenuated strain, but it's not gonna teach us what we can do for the elderly and some other um, uh, patient, po patient populations or, or participant populations. Right, and you obviously can't do a challenge study in the elderly because it's too risky. <laughs> right, and the challenge stock has to be uh, made and it takes an enormous amount of time to standardize it, et cetera. So um, we're looking at, at that and the active uh, committee is um, actually uh, looking at the, at the issue of um, does it think it can substitute for these large-scale efficacy trials? 
And I think the answer is probably going to be no. Uh, we need to do the trials and uh, we need to have this kind of veracity to, to make the policy decisions and to build the factories and, and create the distribution system to, to in an imp- unprecedented way, vaccinate the entire world. I mean, look at with HPV vaccine, it's, you know, we still get what, 50% coverage after 10 years. I mean, that's not what we can do here for COVID. Now, the trials themselves, in terms of the safety and efficacy profile that you're going to need, the number of patients enrolled, the safety database, is, are, is this clinical development plan going to look something similar to other vaccines? Or, or is, are we just talking about a fundamentally different animal in terms of how you assess uh, this vaccine? Well, I think in doing a clinical trial, um, I think the assessment is going to be um, with the kind of veracity that one would do with a well-conducted clinical trial that, have, uh, that comes up with an answer um, and that you believe the answer um, enough so that you can extrapolate it into a policy way. It, uh, you know, There's no one trial that does everything, but maybe this con- constellation of trials will, in, in the end, be able to give great veracity to the in, entire multitude of vaccines that we will have to see. I think we have some wonderful thinkers uh, involving a lot of people throughout the globe um, thinking through this. And, you know, one of the hard things in science is translating the data uh, into policy. And um, we hope that uh, we generate that, that I'm never going to say it's always going to be easy, but um, that uh, it's rational and provides great guidance. Larry, last thing I want to ask you, um, you spent a lot of your career working on HIV vaccines. Um, It's been um, a long road, very, very difficult and frustrating at times, to say the least, 40 years later into that global pandemic and there is no vaccine. Have you had time to reflect at all about, I don't know, how how you compare and contrast these two different situations? Well, I hope this one is easier. And I wish it all, not just my wish, but it's the global wish. And, um, you know, um, uh, I remain optimistic that science has uh, given us a good target um, and we'll rapidly assess this. And uh, I hope we don't have to go to plan B. Yeah, me too. Larry Corey, thank you so much for your time today and, and best of luck. Thanks, Luke. You're a pleasure to talk to Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. See you next episode.